You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Whatever happened to predictability? It's gone. It's gone. I don't know. I know a lot of predictable people. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. And I know that it's a, it's a really stupid show. And there's some really gender-specific jobs that they're going after. But I feel like the evening television in, like, uh, I guess I remember, like, watching the news as a kid. Mm-hmm. It being on at, like, 6 or 7 o'clock whenever, you know, the parental units would put it on. Before Quantum Leap, as soon as Quantum Leap started, when it was in syndicate, we would turn that on. But in all honesty, like I can't really think of any time that I've ever turned on the news, except if there's a big thing going on. Well, and I think that's been part of the shift in society, right? That the ways the media have shifted and our media habits have shifted. My wife and I were at my in-law's house and they watched the news every night. And I was like, oh my gosh, how do you do this? This is the most depressing thing I've ever watched. Like, I watched the penultimate Game of Thrones episode. That's pretty violent. But, man, the evening news, it's just like violence and negative story after one another. And I don't know if it's always been that way, but I know my media habits have changed to where I get, you know, my information from just like these variety of places. But I think a lot of older people still get the media the way they did, which is by watching the evening news. And I'm guessing they're one of the key demographics for evening news. Interesting. I get my information through NPR on the way to and from school. And uh, podcasts, typically from NPR. And also whatever, like, Apple pushes out of me with the news feeds. I guess the Washington Post and whatnot. I've strangely become more interested in, like, slow news. I just coined this term just now. But what I mean by it is, you know, there's so much reaction to news stories immediately. You know, people form opinions. And then, like, you have news channels, like, 10 minutes after story breaks with people giving their opinion on the news that broke. So you like the monthlies, like the Atlantic Monthly? Well, yeah, yeah. I like the the story that sums up a thought piece on the Mueller hearings like a week after with a journalist who's been thinking about it a lot and been working on it and the podcast that comes out a few days later and just kind of like not living moment to moment with the news, which, you know, social media is part of the problem is we, these stories come out and then we react. And, you know, I've mentioned it, I think, on this podcast and Russian trolls try to exploit our partisan identities and try to create more fission in our or more uh, sorry what's the word i'm looking more divisiveness in our society by playing on how we already feel about these things it's funny because the russian trolls rush in to play on people's divisiveness it's a good one yeah (laughs) so i think more maybe more than ever i don't know media has always been important but it's changed so quickly today i think that Kids are on their phones in incredible amounts, right? Consuming a variety of media, social media. You know, sometimes they're engaging with mainstream media by actually like seeing, you know, news videos. On the Snapchat, like they're like, oh, I learned this on the Snapchat. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I know what the Snapchat is, but you get news from the Snapchat? That's a great question. And so shouldn't teachers be talking with kids about it? I mean, I think... Uh, That's why I've been a big advocate of taking out those phones in school and talking about what the heck is happening with them, right? And and allowing school to be a place for reflection and analysis and rethinking our habits. Um, And so I think thinking about media is as important as it's ever been. 
And it really should be a core part of what we do in schools. I agree. I'm in. I'm in. Now, if only there was someone else who we could chat about this with. Yeah, I think I've got the exact person for you, and we're ready to go. Let's invite into the podcast Lance Mason. Welcome. How are you doing, guys? Hey, Lance. How are you? I'm doing well, Michael. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Lance, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background in education? Who is this Lance person? Well, I'm an associate professor of education at uh, Indiana University, Kokomo. Prior to that, I taught high school social studies in uh, Detroit public schools. What was your teaching background like? Yeah, I taught basically every subject you can think of in high school social studies from uh, you know U.S. history to uh, geography, global issues, economics, government, all the, all the good stuff. Did you have this interest in media, which we're about to jump into a bit more when you were teaching in school? And if so, did you have an opportunity to teach it? I was always interested in media. I didn't have an opportunity to go in depth with it in the way that um, I did later. My road to media was really through, well, was, was really my main concern about democracy and the health of democracy. You know, I study Dewey. I do a lot of work on Dewey. But we really can't talk about democracy today without talking about media and talking about media and technology and the role that it plays. Um, and so I kind of found myself gravitating to that material uh, when I was thinking about uh, democracy and, and the consequences of, of interactions and what have you. You can go back if you want to learn a little bit more about John Dewey. In episode 70, we talked to Daniel Stuckert about um, John Dewey. So. Uh, Lance, one of the reasons we've had you, you published in TRSE, you published in numerous social studies journals, and you've written a lot about democracy, John Dewey and pragmatism, and media ecology, whatever the heck that is. Lance, tell us about... Yeah, that is interesting. Tell us something about the work you've been doing. So media ecology, let me explain the term first, is the idea of studying media as environments. And so really it's... Uh, media, in this sense, is a metaphor. And so what we're doing is we're thinking of the, the term media and ecology and basically using a metaphor, bacteria cultures. The idea of media ecology is basically that people and the things they interact with are mutually influencing. So we tend to think of media as something that is without, right? We have us and then we have media and we engage with it. The idea of thinking about it as an ecology is that when you put put us into it, everything changes. So you put a new technology and you put a, a new piece of media into the ecology, it changes the entire ecology. Does that make sense? Yeah, so essentially, I mean, I think what often happens is we, we think of media as neutral. We see like, I just get a tweet from social media. I'm just seeing a television program. But media ecology is, is saying something else, that we're not just consuming media. Media is actually influencing and shaping us. Is that right? Yeah, the way McLuhan put it is he said that, you know, we shape our tools and thereafter they shape us, right? And so there's this kind of mutually influencing phenomenon that goes on and it, it's continuous, right? It never stops. The things we use then influence the way we see the world, they influence the way we see each other, and they influence the way we see ourselves. So Marshall McLuhan, who coined the medium is the message, right, is kind of the famous phrase I know I've always heard. And so in this theory, does it, it makes a big difference what mediums, especially as a whole society that we're primarily consuming. So what's different? If now we're all consuming Snapchat and tweets 
as opposed to television, as opposed to text, as opposed to radio? What's different? How does the how have these different mediums shaped us? Well, you know, it's interesting. The first thing I would say is that research suggests that it, it isn't an either or, right? We're now consuming all of those things you mentioned. People are still watching plenty of TV. They're getting it from, you know, a broader range of devices. People are still listening to the radio. It's probably moved to the car, you know, more than other venues, perhaps. But then all the social media. So, so what's happened is the volume has increased. So we now uh, average is basically every waking moment for a teenager is involved in some sort of media. I don't think that's literally true, but the numbers are astounding. You know, eleven plus hours a day or something like that. It's like a fire um, hose of knowledge or fire hose of information. Yeah, think of your information as water. Yeah, and the and well, and the and the metaphor there is too much of anything can be a bad thing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It can be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. And it's probably all those things, right? Depending on, on the context that we're speaking of, but it certainly changes things. And so we have to look at the changes in education. We tend to look at the advantages that things provide us. Right. And then, I mean, that makes sense, right? You have this new technology. It allows you to do some, maybe communicate with people across the world, or maybe, you know, communicate with kids after school where you wouldn't be able to do that before. And that's an advantage. But what comes along with that are other things that we tend to not pay attention to. And so my research gets into some of that. I'm often thinking about the perhaps the not so positive consequences because those are less apparent. They kind of show up later and we think of them as kind of a a blowback to what is otherwise advantageous. The news cycles actually showed this a little bit, right? It's like Facebook is great. Look at this new Facebook thing. And then there's this like delay 10 years later. Oh, Facebook's maybe the worst. But that's what you're saying kind of happens with these medias. We don't notice these larger negative effects. Let me ask you a question specifically about some of your work. You had a, a paper that you wrote with Scott Metzger, I think in 2012. So NCSS put out a position statement on, on media literacy and the social studies. Uh, and you wrote a paper kind of critiquing what they didn't talk about or what yeah. they left out. So I think that can help us understand a little bit about how we could potentially approach media in social studies. Can you tell us a little bit about what their position statement said and how you responded? So their position statement argued that uh, basically they were pulling from Henry Jenkins, who uh, is known for participatory cultures. Um, and and Jenkins's argument is basically that these tools that we're using, they, they look like they have you know some negative consequences and all these other things. But what is going to happen over time is as we learn to use them better, it's going to transform democracy. And the position statement basically bought into this argument and kind of grabbed onto it. And so in arguing for media literacy, it said, you know, we needed to teach kids to analyze messages. We needed to teach them to use these tools because these tools were going to be the bulwark of a better democratic future. And I had suggested that that was a bit simplistic and that we kind of needed to also pay attention to some of the more negative consequences that are emerging from these tools. Uh, we do know that kids are, uh, I mean, you know, some of the obvious stuff are things like bullying online and stuff like that. Some of the things we don't think about, perhaps, is just the now overwhelming influence of the peer group on kids, right? It used to be when I was going to school, probably you, Dan, but I don't want to speak for you. You could after school, you could get away from everybody, right? You might hang out with your friends or, or you know, hang out particular groups, but the people at school were no longer there, right? You had a separate life. 
Today's school uh, ch- children don't have a separate life if they're immersed in social media. It's there all the time. And so you see the waning of the influence of parents and of other perhaps, you know, community uh, entities in favor of peers. Right. And that's something that's been happening with new technologies throughout the 20th century. But we see, I would argue, a quickening of that with social media. So that's one example of things that were overlooked that I think have consequences. Another thing is just the individualized, privatized kind of medium. Social media is a public forum in a sense, but it's a it's not like public forums of the past. Right. We have this kind of it, there's this weird distinction where we're connected to people, but we're not. We're separated. We get to choose the manner and degree of which we interact. And so the that kind of mutual meaning making that Dewey argued was at the center of democratic life, I would argue is it's either absent, maybe not absent, but it's greatly atrophied in online interactions. And so for me, that was something that needed to be considered if we're thinking about these things as some sort of democratic tool, right? We need to get into engagement with students about these issues so they can understand the uh, consequences and the concerns. One thing that I've thought a lot about, too, I mean, I think early on when these, when a lot of these social media tools came out, there was, yeah, this idea of democratizing, and I think I was guilty of thinking about it that way, too. And I think what a lot of us did is we just were very glass half full in the sense, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to connect people who are doing good things together. And we kind of missed it also connects people who want to do terrible things together, right. right? You have these terrible communities on Reddit. You have these these toxic people who are coming in. And then people have learned to kind of take advantage of the system. I heard a good metaphor recently that what Facebook has created is they basically created almost this like little nation state, this like society that you can go and live in. But they've failed to provide police, firefighters, <laughs> right? Like all the things that society provides, they haven't provided any of those things. And so because they're just interested in profits and increasingly they've slowly added those things, but probably not to the scale since they scaled out to over a billion people. Now they probably can't even provide those resources that a community, uh, physical community would provide you online. Yeah. I think there's no question that I, I've said recently, the social media honeymoon is over. Um, and now we're dealing with the negative consequences, and and you should get credit. You brought up uh, some of these early on. Thank you. <laughs> so tell tell us a little bit more about what does media ecology look like for teachers? What are ways to teach students to to deconstruct what's happening with media and how it shapes and affects us? I think some of the stuff we just talked about is relevant, right? Just having those discussions about the consequences of of, uh, of technology, good, bad, other. Um, so one of the things that I, I uh, draw from is McLuhan's idea of figure ground analysis. Figure ground analysis was a term that McLuhan used. Uh, he pulled it from the uh, gestalt psychologists of the early 20th century. Um, and it's basically the idea of thinking about perception and the way perception changes as the things we interact with change. Of course, when we're thinking about media, we're thinking of it in the narrow sense of, of things like TV, radio, film, and things like that. And McLuhan was thinking broadly um, in this media ecology idea that everything in our environment is media. In the early, actually in the late 1970s, um, he developed this curriculum, and it was this brilliant inquiry curriculum of just kind of, the, it was basically a curriculum of perception, of, of changing different dynamics in, in the environment and having students explore it and try to make meaning of it. And so uh, it, it was completely ignored. It quickly went out of print. 
but it was brilliant. It was way ahead of its time. And so I've argued in my work that some of those things can be brought in to the 21st century here to think about uh, some of the challenges we have today. Um, some of the things I've argued. So one of the most simplest exercises you could do is just to have students, if you're studying recent history or what have you, you could ask them what technology would be like with uh, or what life would be like without a certain technology. So maybe what would life be like without the car? What would cities be like without the car? Better. Do you have the, right. like, the train cars, like in um, a Who Framed Roger Rabbit, like the streetcars? Maybe. Well, in all cities, all cities had streetcars, right? Almost every city had a streetcar. The auto companies bought them and tore them out. Yeah, so, that's right. And, and that's took right. over the streets. I just think about how cars imposed its will Sorry, you got me. You you chose the wrong example. If I was right, just right, quiet, right. <laughs> cars imposed its will on society. It's such a great like. Think about the way things are spread out now, and they didn't used to be. You used to live in kind of either an urban community or you lived in a rural community, but cars allowed this spreading out. And the consequences for us are: it's destroyed our health. People don't get as as much natural exercise in their lives. They don't walk. It's hurt local businesses and led to chains becoming more popular because you're more likely to drive to a chain. You're more likely to walk to a local business. And it's caused incredible uh, environmental problems, which is leading to like ecological devastation of our planet. And so anyway, sorry, that the car is a medium. Thinking of it as a medium has just shaped our society. It's Absolutely. So so Dan would be the know-it-all in the class, you know, and that's uh, that's Got all, all the answers for it, you know. I have a passion on that particular topic. Sorry, if you if for the listeners of the podcast, they don't know, I am a little bit of an activist on trying to get. I think I introduced it my city myself at a city council meeting as Dan Kretka, protected bike lane activist. I was very specific. All right. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of figure ground, the, the cars become ground, and so I should explain, right? So so ground means the background. Things we don't notice, things we take for granted. Uh, the figure are th things that we notice. So they're going to be things that are unusual. And so the car is now, it's, it's part of the water we swim in. And so we don't notice it. Figure ground analysis says take these things, take the things that are ground and find ways to make them figure. And so the simple question of how, how would life be without that technology, without that media technology, is one of the basic questions you can ask students when you're studying, if we're studying 20th century, the car is, if not the most important invention, it's certainly one of the most important inventions, right? And everything has been changed by the car. So the fa their school would probably not be there, or, you know, there wouldn't be as many schools, or there would be a lot more schools, actually, because you'd have to walk on foot. Um, so you probably have smaller localized uh, uh, education system, if you will. And so all the, all the things you mentioned, Dan. So that's a, a big part of it. And, you know, we can also then look at more contemporary technologies. Now, I think we all remember what it was like to not live with social media. But our students are not going to know that. They will have kind of grown up that this would be the water they swim in. And so we can ask them a similar question. Say, what would life be like without social media? How would you meet friends? How would you guys get together? How would you figure it out? It was oh very God. difficult. We, we'd have to I plan stuff a day ahead and meet somewhere. Over. How do we do that? Right? It's just Lance, you influenced me to, and uh, with um, a colleague Nicole D'Amico, we designed you know a social media assignment, and part of that was a techno fast, right? A social media fast. And students comment on so many things that help them uncover also just their habits, the things they're, they're possibly not even in control of. One of my favorite comments from that, that research study was just a student who said, I didn't know what to do with my hands all day. So they gave up their, their smartphone for like the day 
And they did it for one day, and they're like, I literally didn't know. And they also talk about how often they just have a compulsion to reach in their phone and check something, not for any reason that is like that they're thinking. They it's not like they had a reason to reach for the phone. They're just reaching for it without thinking. Do you remember that commercial? It was about uh, quitting smoking. And so all these people like trying to drink coffee, and they just couldn't do it. They were just pouring coffee all over themselves because they're so used to doing it with a cigarette <laughs> in their hand. It's interesting like the, how the addiction – of cell phones is that is interesting you know one of the things that i do with my uh, school and society students is uh you know we, we do the the 24-hour blackout where i have them just kind of get off electronic media for 24 hours and they they write about it but uh sometime previously i have them keep a 48-hour media inventory log and so that is that is an exercise that alone brings things from ground to figure because the uh, students will often say, oh, my God, I checked my phone 200 times, you know, and I, I ended up just putting little tick marks each time I did it because I, I got tired of writing down a separate a, a separate space for it. it. It is really interesting how those kind of exercises can kind of bring that stuff to light and just get students to think in a way that they, they didn't before about what they're doing and, and, and what it might mean. Yeah, I've also loved, liked the diary, and I usually do those together. You do the diary first, then later in the semester after we've been talking a little bit about your media habits, then then you do the fast, and it's really cool. Another thing um, you helped to influence me to do, Lance, and this may just be your idea. I can't at this point. This is how teaching is, right? You forget like at some point where it, the the full idea came from. But I like to use political commercials, political advertisements from the past, and kind of deconstruct them by piece by piece. Yeah. And so I use the Reagan Bear ad because the text of that ad is so absurd. So basically what the students do is I first have them read the text of this Reagan ad from 1984 and they're like, what is this? Is this like a fairy tale? Like what's it like? They don't, most of them don't know. There's always like one to two students who start to catch on that it could be a political ad, but it's very unclear what it is. Then they watch the video and it literally looks like a nature video of a bear like walking through woods. Like there's nothing. And then at the end you see a human standing facing the bear. And it's not till you hear the audio that you start piecing together what's happening here. And you see how influential the audio is on the text and the video and the music that was used and how they used that to influence you and make you feel something. But you also realize how non-logical the argument is, right? It's like meant to tap into your feelings in a way with music. Is the bear a good bear? I don't know what's the ad. Or is the bear the Soviet Union? The bear is – so basically it's saying – it's, it's asking this question, there's a bear in the woods, we don't know if the bear is good or bad, but we should be careful. And essentially, I think it's, it's pointing to, new, the, to the Soviet threat of nuclear war. Ah, uh, Russian bear. And saying that we need to have, that we need to have strength to counter this bear, and, because we don't know if this bear is going to come and get us. And I'm anti-bear, so I think that would actually be effective for me, but that's just <laughs> because I'm... The Teddy variety, too, I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> since The Revenant, bear popularity went way down since The Revenant came out. If you haven't seen it, you will not like bears after watching it. So, so anyways, it really helped my students realize the way that political ads can manipulate your feelings, yeah. not like kind of your logical, like, hey, was this a good policy or that's not? That's right. That's not really not what the point was. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a good point. The traditional media literacy stuff is very important, but I think the idea of thinking about the sensory features, right? And that's something that the kind of to take it back to the theory. So if if media ecology is rooted in the social psychology of Dewey and Mead, if we think about Dewey, his uh, you know natural metaphysics, he basically says we're biological beings 
we're affected by the world around us and, and we affect the world around us, right? It's this mutually influencing phenomenon. And we have to think about our senses and what they do. So particularly Neil Postman kind of brought that into media ecology in thinking about the way our different senses perceive uh, reality. And so what exercises I think, Dan, like you're talking about here, get us into what I, and I, I think you may have said, said something along these lines, but what I like to do is isolate the sensory features of an ad. First, we might look at the uh, images, but muting everything else and just telling students, just look at the images and let's, let's take a look at the way the images tell a story or maybe even take the picture down and just listen to the music and the, uh, the spoken word or just listen to the spoken word or just listen to the music. And, you know, a lot of times the music is hilarious because, you know, if it's particularly if it's a negative ad, you know, it, it, somewhere around halfway through, you know, it, it hits a higher intensity of badness. Dun, dun, dun. If it's a positive ad about a candidate, that's at the same time, uh, halfway through, you'll start getting, uh, it'll kind of kick up in this kind of spirited, joyous thing. And so that is the kind of stuff that students don't notice when it comes at us all at once, right? That's the thing about the screen is it the way the way McLuhan put it is it washes over us. And so what you're left with is an impression because there's too much there for you to kind of analytically isolate it out and pick out this and this and this. Um, it really takes a, a kind of a calculated exercise to do that. And I, I think that's really important for students to understand, as you as you pointed out. So it's even changed the way politicians run their campaigns. Our whole political landscape has changed. And so from, I don't know, you know, who politicians in the 1800s giving these like long speeches in towns to the rise of this radio advertising or using the radio as like a, a way to convey messages. I like when they made theme songs. I thought that was really fun. There was like a, a JFK one. Like they all had the. And now it's just like whatever popular music is out there. But yes, the 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 message has totally shifted, and how the message gets out has absolutely shifted uh, dramatically. Now it's just done via Twitter and yelling. Sure. <laughs> right, and I, I, I'm guessing that could partially be explained by thinking about a media ecology, right? Like where because we have these bite-sized communication bits, it makes sense that political candidates, particularly a president, could convey messages in 280 characters. I hear there's a president that does that a lot. I don't, I don't pay a lot of attention to Twitter, but uh, oh, I know he is, he is the tweet master, as yeah. I understand it. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a political act in an attention economy. To not give attention to some things can be, can be a, a starting point. So you've had a recent article from Sight, right? Yeah, uh, critical metaphor analysis of, of research in, in the social studies, so of, of educational technology research in the social studies. What, what's important to point out is that this is part of the figure ground research that I'm doing. So that may not be clear at, uh, at first, but basically the metaphors are the ground upon which we rest our research. And so by bringing them to figure, the theory goes, by bringing them to figure, then we can kind of do more intelligent, more deliberate research. And so that, that was the purpose of the, uh, of the paper, if you will. So what kind of metaphors are ed tech people who are publishing in this site is a journal that publishes social studies, people who are doing ed tech work too. Uh, what types of metaphors were they, have they been using? Well, I found five categories of metaphors. The first was manual labor metaphors. So thinking of technology as a tool, for example. Um, and so th this is based upon the theoretical work of Lakoff and Johnson, who argue that all of our metaphors are based upon primary bodily experiences. And so I'm taking things that people are saying and taking them back to the physical experience 
that they're rooted in. And so manual labor metaphors, if we call if we call the devices we're using to communicate right now a tool, then I'm thinking of something like a hammer or something like that, right? So that to me is a metaphorical extension of the word. There were construction building metaphors. That's not surprising because that's common in constructivist learning theory and stuff. Um, didn't find those to be particularly significant, but they were there. Mechanistic metaphors. And so this kind of has us thinking about teaching or learning as a complex machine. So talking about networks and connections and things like that, when we're talking about the act of teaching, this is a mechanistic metaphor. Maybe some of the more interesting ones was uh, technology is biological life and technology is agent. And so this is when we're talking about like technologies evolving. It should be obvious technologies don't evolve, right? They're made by people. So they're developed by human beings, but we talk about them evolving. So we've now kind of given them a biological status that they do something natural. And so my concern there is, of course, that then that veils the interest that the people that are actually developing them, right? It kind of puts it behind this natural veil. And the last category was uh, journey metaphors. So the idea of transport from one place to another through technology. It's interesting because there's no question, and I know I've been guilty of this, just using metaphors mindlessly and not really thinking about what they mean, even though they are yeah, conveying too. things. And, and metaphors are such, I mean, it's, it's communication, right? I mean, like the, the words we use are, the, are, are meaning and they make our world in many ways. Right. It's really fascinating work. If you were to give advice to teachers who are trying to help students really think not just about media literacy and analyzing messages, but for doing this work of understanding media as environments, what advice would you give to a classroom teacher trying to do it? So I've written about this in a few different places. One of them is the uh, Keywords in Social Studies book, Dan, that you edited with, with some colleagues. I have a paper in uh, Curriculum Inquiry that gets into the uh, figure ground theory in more detail and also has some uh, practical examples about things you can do with social media, questions you could ask students, activities that you could have them do. You know, one example, just quick, that comes to mind is having students, um, if you can get them to, and, you know, I, I don't know about the permissions of all this, but if they've got phones, you could have them all pick up a news app and follow it for a week. Tell them to get on, I don't know how many times a day, and do you know X amount of searches. Um, and then at the end of a week, it could be any amount of time, but let's say a week, you have them switch and look at someone else's app and the stories that they have. And then you have them compare the stories. This, again, brings from ground to figure the fact that we have these individualized media experiences that are probably drastically different from one another. Right, which then lead us into conversations of building a common sensibility, even building a common knowledge base about what's happening in the culture has become trickier. It's become more complex. The, the papers I have out there have resources such as that. It's really great work and absolutely the um, not to tout our own book, but Lance's media chapter in our keywords book was incredible and really helped me rethink through some new things. So. Well, we really just enjoyed having you on today and learning from you, Lance. So thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Where can our listeners find you or your work online? I'm out there on ResearchGate and Facebook. And you Google me, you'll find me. So thanks again, Lance, for, for joining us. And we certainly will uh, find you through Google or maybe DuckDuckGo because it doesn't collect as much of our data. And we'll find you online and continue conversations in person, during our TechnoFast, and maybe if you get online, we'll talk about it there too. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
At the Vision of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to techno fast, no, you can't techno fast and actually chat us up on Twitter. But hit us up on the Twitter. We're at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook and sometimes somewhere else. And of course, if you haven't already, and really, come on, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you want us to be. Even your home, if you would like to put us on like a speaker or something. And if you uh, write us a five-star review, we'll read it on the air. And don't hold it against Michael that for the first time his computer died during an episode. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm moving. I can't find my thing. You're outed. (laughs) You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.